there is nothing magic about healthcare improvement work in this sense. It takes time, teamwork, tests of change, tenacity. You get the idea. My love of alliteration notwithstanding, this list reminds us that it may be systems we want to change, but it's up to human beings to make it happen. And human beings, no matter how much they believe in better patient care, no matter how dedicated they are as health professionals, can lose heart, lose direction, grow weary, and start to feel burdened by an endless stream of improvement initiatives. If you can relate to this notion, if it sounds like you or someone you know or your organization, we're so glad you've joined us today for an honest discussion about these issues and some fresh thinking about achieving change and still having some energy and goodwill left over. Imagine that. That's all ahead on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. This is an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're into our sixth year of coming to you bi-weekly and also for later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. It's not easy to talk about a quality improvement movement in danger of getting diminishing returns because clinicians and staff are chafing under the bit of the work itself. But as we're about to hear, this must be said if we're going to effectively address the situation. If you'd like to use Twitter, uh, I want to welcome into our studio, Erica Reed is here, one of our wonderful fellows along with uh, uh, Chris, and uh, she likes to tweet, and when she goes back to Scotland, we're trying to work out a deal where she'll just keep tweeting uh, for her forthcoming programs. But if you like to tweet, thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets. That's another way we can keep the conversation going. We have a three-question WebEx poll going at the top of the hour, uh, and there is uh, the uh, the three questions. John has just flashed the sh- excuse me flashed the slide. Some of you may have already taken advantage of it when you logged in. Uh, go ahead. These are yes and no questions. Um, they're about very big issues, but yes and no can give us even some idea, sense of the crowd, what's going on. It's very related to what we're about to talk about. We'll take a look at your answers uh, just before we head over to chat at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I'll read the questions really quickly. Do the care providers in your organization express that change initiatives are adding workload to their day? Yes or no? Does your organization or department or unit have a way to routinely assess the workload associated with a new improvement initiative? Yes or no? Is keeping up with the pace of change in your job adding stress and impacting how well you feel you can do your job? Yes or no? Thanks for taking part in that. Let me now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that longer bios about all of them are on the WIHI web pages. On the phone and together around a speakerphone, Uma Kodagal, a neonatologist and health services researcher by training, is the Senior Vice President for Safety, Quality, and Transformation at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She's also the Executive Director of the James Anderson Center for Health Systems Excellence and Professor of Pediatrics, Obstetrics, and Gynecology at the University of Cincinnati. Welcome, Uma. Are you there, Uma? Yes. Good. Okay. <laughs> this is the roll call roll call part of the show. <laughs> Great. Glad you're there. Next to Uma is Julie Holt. Uh, she is a vice president of patient services at Cincinnati Children's, focused on nursing operation and patient safety and experience. Prior to this role, role Julie was vice president of patient care services and chief nursing officer at Mercy Health Anderson Hospital. Glad you're with us today, Julie. 
Thank you. Happy Wonderful. Great. Terrific. And here in the studio with me is Chris Hayes. He is the 2013-2014 Canadian Harkness Fellow in Healthcare Policy and Practice at IHI. In his other life, he's a staff critical care physician. He teaches and is Medical Director of Quality and Patient Safety at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Welcome, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. All right. Now, Chris and I have been talking about this for literally uh, his entire uh, time here at IHI, so I am really thrilled and excited that we're digging into some of uh, what he's been thinking and working on uh, all this year, and I think you're in for a real treat, I should say. The issue is a bit tough, but I think, um, I I hope what we're going to talk about today uh, gives you some ideas uh, for going forward. So, Chris, I want to kick off with this question. One of the hallmarks of quality improvement in healthcare has always seemed to me, in some sense, to be the work itself, doing things differently. That can be quite liberating. Patients are better cared for, clinicians and staff get on the same page, and sometimes a lot of waste gets eliminated. So that can have a huge impact on how people feel about their jobs, and I'm wondering what's happened to that. Is that uh, kind of bargain, our QI payoff, for lack of a better phrase, uh, kind of uh, in a little bit of trouble? Well, Madge, I think it's safe to say that quality improvement has made amazing strides and has uh, set uh, you know, a new course for healthcare, and we're seeing improvements across the globe in healthcare delivery and the outcomes of patients. So in no way am I saying that I think um, we're completely in trouble. The issue then becomes, though, is it possible that while we're uh, adding, using quality improvement to improve the healthcare uh, delivery, that we might actually be making healthcare delivery harder. And I think what we what we need to start doing is looking to say, well, what is actually the impact of the change initiatives that we're adding? And in when when I sort of you know sort of came to this came to light for me after nearly a decade of of uh, trying implementation initiatives within my own organization or nationally with the Canadian Patient Safety Institute, uh, I started hearing more and more. Well, wait a minute. You're asking us to do something else. Uh, we don't have time for this. Uh, how are we going to fit this into our workday? And so I really started to say, okay, obviously this is a growing issue, and it seems to be a barrier to people adopting new change. And so when looking out there, I thought, well, this others must have commented on this. And in looking to the literature, there was actually not very much on the impact of quality improvement. There is in its success there also is about some quality improvement initiatives not succeeding. But the issue of workload related to quality improvement was not well represented in the literature. Okay. And some sign in a way of uh, maturity, in a sense, a movement that's been at it for a while, and perhaps it makes sense to be thinking about this right now. Absolutely. Okay. So talk to us about uh, you You experienced this yourself. Um, we, I think there's probably a shared sense around the table here and uh, the over a 1,000 who are now with us uh, on the program, uh, people responded very positively to this program, and I think there's a reason uh, for that. So how did you decide to start looking at the problem and some possible solutions? Give us uh, some some of what you've been working on. Yeah, so again, in, in experiencing my own uh, organization's uh, implementation efforts, there had to be a way of really looking to say, how do, how do we achieve improved um, Outcomes, and do it in a way that's feasible. And so I started looking, and there there actually are some articles out there, and and actually a few of them happen to be in intensive care, which is where I work. So, for instance, before this paper, 
um, which was 2013, there was no nobody had quantified how much time it took to complete the the current version of the ventilator associated pneumonia bundle. Um, and and this group actually looked at it and said, well, when when we did our time motion studies, it actually equated to about two hours of nursing per day. And the nurses said, yes, we believe that this is the right thing to do, but. We're, we're, probably, we're trying to fit it in, and we may not be doing other things like moving our patients as much. In the same environment was a study that looked at um, controlling blood sugar of critically ill patients. And again, another study that estimated it adds about two hours of nursing time per day. So now we're at four hours per day in one environment. And then the third example, um, which didn't quantify but said, what's the impact of, ha- of adding electronic health records or health information technology to an environment. And although it is strongly believed that it will improve uh, communication, uh, safety, and documentation for uh, better patient outcomes, it comes with additional workload. And some people were commenting that, well, I'm, I'm working longer in the day, or perhaps I'm not spending as much time with my patients. So when you add that and... and um, graphically depicted here, that if you're unaware of the amount of workload you're adding, then once you've gone through the zone of change to introduce the new the new work into the environment, you may be in this state where you're adding more workload and creating less capacity. But it doesn't have to be that way because I think two good examples, which have also been measured, is the CLABSI work on, on reducing central line infections. And in the study of what made that such a successful strategy, um, Mary Dixon Woods uh, reported that the team said the, in, the CART was so instrumental, you brought all of the things we needed together at the time of the insertion of the central line, and our job was now easier. So we'll do it. Uh, I'm not saying it was that easy, but at least it added to, it was a significant reason as to why people felt that they were able to achieve this task. And then another example is a surgical safety checklist. I mean, if done well, it takes 90 to 100 second, 120 seconds. And there's some evidence that says you, if you save one um, downstream inefficiency because of that, blood's there or the right equipment's there, you actually save up to 30% of time within a single operating room, which will save you time and not go over it. So, so I think the top is an example of where strategies have probably unwillingly added workload, and then the bottom are some you know, highly successful strategies that may have actually reduced the workload associated with uh, doing the new work. Okay. I want to make sure I uh, I may have missed. GC stands for, you've got... Vap- Gly- glycemic control. Glycemic right. control. Yeah. Okay, very good. All right, let's uh, flip to uh, another image here. Yeah, so I think this just says that that's obviously a one, a one initiative issue. But if we're unwillingly or unnoticingly doing this over and over with all our new initiatives without really knowing the workload or the capacity issues associated with those interventions, then you can see very quickly that it can lead to an unsustainable state of where we're asking the, the point-of-care users, point-of-care caregivers, to take on more with the same amount of resources and not really uh, providing with more time. And that's really unsustainable. Right. Okay. All right. So now we, the hypothesis, let's look here, next image here. Um, what should we take from this? Well, I think this actually is fairly intuitive, and I don't think this hypothesis is uh, you know, novel really in any way. I think it's almost human nature that 
um, if we there's two things that guide our sort of decision or choices to take on new tasks or go down different paths. One of them is the value that we place on the on the new work, the change, the the the, the goal that you're trying to achieve. The higher the perceived value you individually feel. Or, and that's either for yourself personally or for things that you care about, like your patients, like your co workers. The more perceived value you place on that or find in the new work or the change, the more likely you are to undertake the tasks associated with that. But at the same time, as humans, we actually look for easier ways to do things. And so, why not capitalize on that? And if you achieve uh, an intervention and a change initiative, that has high value and in the ideal sense of the word uh, word, actually reduces the workload associated with the change, then nature will tell us these things are more uh, adoptable. And I think we've somewhat spent more time trying to develop perceived value in these initiatives without paying attention to the workload and then people feel they feel the will and the reason why to adopt these but then they're taking on tasks that don't fit. And as a lot of the feedback that we've been seeing in testing this model, people are saying, we think that leads to a delayed failure, that people, they'll take it on, but then it fizzles out, mm. you know, in month two or three, because now they realize that, how oh, I can't really fit this into the, the existing resource structure I have. So aim for high perceived value and low or reduced workload, and you're more likely to get sustainable adoption. Okay. So it'll be interesting when we turn to Uma and Julie to see if that uh, they've experienced a, 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 you know, that characterization that people will take it on, sort of soldier into it, um, but there may be some downstream um, you know, failure as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we have this wonderful phrase, maximally adoptable improvement. Try saying that fast. And two slides, and a reminder, John said this, but a reminder, if you're looking for slides because you're only on the phone and not looking at the screen with all of us, you can email info at IHI.org and they'll share them with us, with you, excuse me. So Matt, so talk, talk us through this one. Yeah, so in, uh, in, in the work that I've been doing, so reviewing the literature, talking to key experts, doing site visits of high-performing organizations, and then bringing an expert panel together to discuss these issues, we tried to sort of create a, uh, a graphical representation of, one, the issue of how workload and perceived value affect outcomes of projects and how they feed back on the workforce. And then what are the inputs to that? How can you modify um, that outcome based on things that you do? And so that's sort of representing this first half of the model, which says that there's two aspects. There's the intervention design, which is what are you asking people to do? And then there's the implementation strategy. How are you going about asking them to do it? And this then will have an impact on this balance between workload capacity and perceived value. And if the strategies so happen to produce high workload, low value, and a reduced capacity, then the literature definitely supports that this will lead to burnout, change fatigue, cynicism, create error, and and force people to, to create workarounds. It'll also decrease the chance of the initiative being successful. And both of these will have negative feedback onto the recipients of change because A, they have less capacity and B, they say, well, this, you, tell, you told me this would work and it isn't doable, so therefore, I'm not so willing to undertake the next time you ask me for change. So it actually increases resistance. 
But if you use um, strategies that really um, try and drive higher perceived value and at the same time reduce workload, and by workload I mean cognitive, physical, and time, um, such that the balance is higher preserved capacity, higher perceived value, and lower workload, then again, the literature would support that you're more likely to get adoption and, and sustained improvement associated with the intervention and more likely to achieve the intended outcomes, which will have a positive feedback on the recipients of change because their capacity will be preserved. And they say, you know what? We were involved in this. This worked. Things are better. Sign me up for the next one. So it decreases resistance. And in fact, I think, and this is more of a thought than the literature supports, but this strategy will is what is necessary to create a culture of quality improvement by seeing the success, the sustained success of improvement initiatives. Okay, uh, Chris. Now one more image here, um, as uh, we kind of look at some of your work. And I want to. I will talk about this more uh, throughout the program and before we wrap up. But this is all stuff that uh, Chris has been working on, testing, uh, getting some feedback on. Eventually, there will be some kind of a tool, a guide uh, that you all can take advantage of. Um, we're also, Chris is looking to publish. So um, this is kind of a taste and a really nice early look at this. Yeah, so we, you know, again, we, we wanted to make the model, the primary purpose was to make it useful and usable rather than theoretical and you know nice to look at um, and so what we did is from the model then asked um, an expert panel to say what are the real if we had to just list five or six what would be the real factors that would impact the recipients of change um, workload and capacity perceptions and, uh, and and perceived value and so here's just two ones that really sort of the, the expert panel agreed with and the literature really supports. So end user participation, which I'm sure is not a surprise to anyone in quality improvement. But the more people, the recipients of change are involved at all stages of the change process, the more likely they are to develop value attach or attach value to the initiative. And because they're more involved, they're probably also more likely to design work that's easier because most people don't join an improvement initiative and say, that sounds great. Yes, uh, give me the extra hour of work. I'll, they, they're not going to design that. Um, so that's one. And then we've asked people that are piloting this to sort of say, well, where do you think you fit on this scale? And then uh, attached to this guide is also a, some suggested actions and tools to say, well, if you'd prefer to be closer to the maximally adoptable, uh, end of the scale, then here's some strategies. And then the other one is workload. And again, what was surprising is people said, well, actually, we really haven't measured this. And we're going to buy ourselves a stopwatch or ask people, how is the workload, both cognitive, physical, and time related to this? And what's been incredible in, in the early pilot phase is that people are really saying, you know, we, we this just wasn't part of our conversation. Mm. And now we really... You know, which is great. I think that, that if the tool ends up being useful, that's that's really the the goal for me. Wow. Okay. Thanks. All right. So uh, we're setting the table here, and um, I think. Um 
a place where there has been a conversation going on, including a conversation with Chris, but I think also a conversation within is at Cincinnati Children's. So we're going to turn to Uma Kodagal and her colleague Julie Holt now. I do want to say uh, thank you all who are already jumping in with some um, chat questions. We will get to them uh, momentarily. We're going to first hear from Uma and Julie. As far as literature goes, we do put together a resource document. We've captured already. We'll be posting it uh, to the website tomorrow. We'll make sure that we can grab as much out of Chris's head as possible and some of the references to the literature um, he was talking about. And a reminder, yes, this call is being recorded and will be posted to the website tomorrow as well. All right. Thanks, Chris. Very helpful. So, Uma, it goes without saying, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center is a beacon for the global improvement community on so many levels and by so many measures. So I want to know, what is it about this issue that resonates uh, so well or so much for you and also about Chris's work uh, where you think it might be helpful? And thanks again for being part of this. Uma Kodagal. Thank you, Madge. I'll go first, and, and Julie will add, uh, I think, the, the more spicier content. <laughs> I would say that for the last two to three years at Cincinnati Children's, and we've been on our serious transformation journey since 2001, probably in a really serious way, I have uh, been hearing and, um, you know, what was initially a whisper, maybe a sigh, maybe an occasional conversation at the end of the meeting, maybe a very trusted nursing director saying, you know, uh, things are a bit overwhelming, but I would say more recently in the last year, it's been a cacophony. So when I met Chris and heard what he was doing, it wrong be true to me, and uh, one of the reasons that I became very interested in this was because I think that, that there's another unexpected consequence to this, which is not just that the effort fizzles away, but that people are unable to complete the evidence-based package that we believe will be necessary to deliver better outcomes. And because it's a question of current work for future benefit, you know, if I can do the BAP bundle properly, do the BSI bundle properly today, this kid will not get a pneumonia in my hospital PICU will not be filled with kids with pneumonia, but that sort of that balancing when I'm really busy becomes hard. So Chris's comment was like really, really resonated with me, and we sort of grabbed, you know, a drink and started to talk about it to say, how, what does this mean? And increasingly, I think uh, as I have been, as my eyes have been opened through Chris's work, I have been able to see that this is pretty uh, significant. In the beginning, I was concerned that this may just be people not wanting to do more improvement, and I interpreted really more as a as a concern about that. And I would say that that got me got me worried. But but the idea of you know Chris's comments about perceived value. You know, our clinicians are always engaged in our improvement work. They really uh, determine if the bundle is right. You know, they do sort of speak of it, but I think it is more the added on multiple improvement initiatives, all very, very important, uh, all becoming increasingly important for more complex kids. And then where's the balance and tension between maintaining it and, you know, being able to do the work? I don't know that, I think because we begin with the evidence first, a lot of our improvement initiatives will peter out very quickly if we don't have strong evidence. 
our method of engagement is reasonably strong. Um, our, we put in sustaining mechanisms into place. We do a lot of capacity building. But I would say that the base just gets bigger and bigger as we do more. And at some point, people are saying, I know this is important, but what do we stop doing? And for people on the front line, it felt a little bit like confetti, you know, just a lot mm -hmm. of stuff, all important, but how do I, I do that? And uh, the biggest issue that came to us was really priority setting. Are we really focused? Are we setting the priorities right? Are we sequencing our work well? We have piloted and tested this idea of, of uh, you know, workload measurement. And Chris, I would say it doesn't look like the one you described. And Julie and I were saying that we need to sort of do that, you know, do the measurement you're describing with a stopwatch. But mm -hmm. our measurement was really a, a measurement of an improvement team that looked across all our inpatient units and said, what is our burden of improvement and how do we make sure that we prioritize it correctly. More recently, Julie leads the work on operational excellence. And where this came to light for us as an urgent area is when we started to see some deterioration in our performance of our prevention standards after fairly extensive standardization and training with Toyota in you know, very clear, good methods. And we suspect that the combination of workforce burden um, complexity of kids and even ever so marginal shifts in staffing mm -hmm. can tip us overboard. So I think when when we're in a stable situation, Chris, I don't think we felt what you described. When we are in a situation where we're close to capacity, we are so acutely aware of the impact that this can have on you know workforce burden and on patient care. I will say that because we use a feedback loop, both qualitative and an annual survey, uh, there's a lot of reinforcement for what Chris is saying. Our, our most recent um, survey that we've just completed asks, the organization asks us that we please think about prioritization and think about what we're doing and what the evidence and impact for it should be. So everything Chris described so eloquently uh, fits very much in Cincinnati. Julie is much closer to the action. As you indicated, she sort of oversees um, a lot of this work, which is really in the nursing uh, bucket, so to speak, and I want her to say a little bit about it. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Uma, and uh, welcome again, Julie. Thanks, Madge. Um, we, um, it, Uma mentioned that we began to have some challenges around um, the sustainability and consistency of our prevention standard bundles. And um, we, as a team of leaders, went back to the drawing board and worked with the staff. We have a, we're a magnet facility and we have a very strong shared governance model and said, um, you know, we needed to put some things in place to prioritize back to the bedside and what was going on. Um, the first thing that people say is, is you know, that's going to take time and we're doing all of this. So we had to refocus and reprioritize a bit um, to back to the bedside. And then um, we really um, got people involved in um, what was the most important thing in their area that they needed to get get either improved or back on track or that kind of thing. So we um, 
we basically had the managers and the leaders go back to the bedside and do a whole lot of um, coaching with the staff. And in that process, we're able to, de- to determine exactly what the biggest stressors were. Um, and, and what we found was there were some units, because we have done so much education and training of our staff and our frontline staff around um, improvement science, that there were lots of people doing projects on any given unit because they believe in it and they want to do it. But um, one of our ICUs at one, on one week had like 20 different audit tools that they were filling out and those types of things, and that was distracting the staff from the, the actual work, we believe, just from interviewing people. So. Um, this year, we are really trying to work through with our goals and prioritize all of our projects through our trainings and things like and through shared governance to focus on those goals to help with that prioritization so that you don't get into a situation where you have 20 different audit tools in one week. So those are some of the things that we're, we're trying to do. But as you can tell, um, we don't have all the answers, and uh, we're continuing to I think, look for those. I cool. think Thanks, Julie. may add yes. one area of, of uh, caution and concern about the impact of the workload is missed care, which I think, Chris, you sort of alluded mm-hmm. to in your comments. And that's the area that we are really... Um, concentrating on and through qualitative interviews and through more, let me say, more um, coaching huddles, trying to truly understand if the staff and the nurses feel like they can complete the bundle and then raising questions about alternative methods of emphasizing of delivering on reliability of prevention standards. So Chris's work ties in very nicely with the work of Linda Aiken and Heather Topscooley who have identified that some of these uh, covert not being able to do the work does not surface unless you're really looking for it mm-hmm. and thinking about it and solving it. Mm-hmm. Thank you both very, very much, and I really appreciate your openness uh, as an organization kind of looking at these issues, and um, I'm going to just throw out one thing. I think just to kind of move things along, we'll, we'll uh, look at the poll, and then we'll go right to chat, but just to further kind of maybe some of our discussion uh, in your questions, our audience today, one of the things that Uma brought up um, as we were planning this program is that another hallmark of quality improvement has often and been speed and working uh, at a pace and keeping up the momentum, particularly when you're introducing new changes, testing new changes, etc. And uh, Uma brought up, you know, even some early concerns that when you, if you slow that down, you may be losing something uh, in that process. So we'll uh, kind of just let that kind of uh, sort of uh, float out there for a moment, and perhaps uh, we can uh, come back to that. So thanks, uh, Chris, Uma, and Julie. And now we'll take a very, very quick look at how you responded to the poll. poll. Okay, I don't know if this this isn't. I don't know if this is headline material or not. So the first question: Do the care providers in your organization express that change initiatives are adding workload to their day? Well, overwhelmingly, you said yes. I, I can barely see the no there, although there were 38 of you there. Um, does your organization have a way to routinely assess the workload associated with new improvement initiatives? And unfortunately, we flip, and uh, there's a big no. Although um, maybe not quite as bad, some do, and maybe you could tell us. 
us. Those of you who said yes, um, chat away. Let us know what you're doing in your organization. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, research project in a way. And the third question is keeping up with the pace of change in your job, adding stress and impacting how well you feel you can do your job. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, overwhelming number of you said yes as well. The poll results will be another thing you all can download um, and uh, take with you when we uh, uh, wrap up the show today. All right, let's uh, go back to thank you all for participating in that. Um, so that's, John, you want to just quickly remind people of use of chat. Uh, yep, just make sure when you're uh, asking your questions and comments, they're directed to all participants in the send to bar in your chat. All right. Thank you very much. All right. So we've got a lot of questions that are rolling in. And a reminder, do chat to all participants. Uh, if you try and go some other route, we may not see your question in time to get to it. Um, a question, I think I'll go right back to Cincinnati Children's here, either Uma or Julie. Somebody was asking, uh, how are you actually uh, doing some of this uh, prioritization? What approach do you use to prioritize initiatives and opportunities? That comes from Aaron. Thanks. Um, let me let me start, but I think Julie should speak uh, about the inter- about the integration. We have created a new um, our next wave of integration, a structure called operational excellence. It is really our ability to integrate improvement and operations closely, which, as many of you know, in the improvement world, a lot of people, a lot of us in improvement, are always you know always have great ideas for somebody else to work on. And the operational excellence group that Julie leads along with uh, a collab, uh, her partner, uh, who um, two, so two nursing VPs and an associate chief of staff who's a physician, all three trained in improvement, lead the operational excellence work. And um, we have a set of priorities at the organizational level that are part of our five-year strategic plan. But we have, I think, this year really very carefully looked at that five-year strategic plan and looked at what needs to happen this coming year. And then the other thing that we've done is that we have different domains of improvement. So we have work on safety, we have work on flow, we have work on chronic disease, we may have work on patient experience. So instead of really thinking about them individually, the leaders of that portfolio work have come together to agree and decide on a common prioritization across the domains. And then it is really Julie and her team that that look at it, vet it, and say what needs to happen. And Julie, maybe you could describe the bottom-up process that you began this year that enabled us to think about a single prioritization. Right. So we're on a fiscal year that starts in July. And um, in March, early March, we um, sent out a request to all of our operational excellence leaders. And those are the frontline medical directors and nursing leaders in each point of care or each patient population unit, that type of thing, to to let us know what they thought was the most important things that they needed to do in those different categories that UMA defined and get that back to us. And, and I have to be honest, at first we had a lot of people who were kind of like, well, aren't we supposed to wait until we hear like what the newest goals are for 15 from the senior team? And we said, no, we want to know what you think will make the biggest difference in your unit. And um, 
and we're hoping that that's going to create more buy-in. And what, what we have found is that um, it's really like right on and aligned. So that, that was a great um, finding and test or reinforcement to how goals have been set in the past. But um, it's um, helping us to then prioritize. So we have these overarching strategic goals. How does the unit um, contribute to those? And then we take it one step further to the staff and then say, you know, how do we prioritize if we're going to do these five things this year? How do we do it? What do we do first? And uh, how do we get it done? And so, I mean, we are still struggling with this issue, but that's how we're starting to try to, you know, bite it off a piece at a time and make it better. I think think another area where we had tension around this is that the magnet um, programs themselves um, also ask for a work and therefore we have very activated uh, nurses really thinking about you know their contribution and their role and so uh, the, uh, in, inside each unit of this operational excellence the magnet uh, self-governance uh, nurses and the quality improvement and the operational team is coming together so we really have a single team and therefore some of these discussions are happening much better. This parallel kind of planning process was part of our struggle. Well, thank you. I, I think it's 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 clearly it is in process, and um, I think it's interesting to kind of hear how you're starting to unpack it, even if you don't have all the answers. It's you have to operationalize this too. Chris wanted thank you, Uma and Julie. Chris wanted to add something. Well, and, and just reflecting on Julie and Uma, your, your approach um, from from the work that we did, one of the elements that came up was what we called alignment and planning which really was a sense of how well did the recipients of change see the fit of what was being suggested. And so there were sort of two ways of looking at that. One is did it it map to where you thought or had been told that the organization is going um, or was it sort of out of left field and ad hoc? And but even those ad hoc issues, some of them may be, well, it seemed to fit for the unit because they came up with the idea themselves, which then attributes a higher um, value. And then sort of the the common thread on, on either of those examples was, but let's do it without competing priorities uh, and projects so that if we can spend the time on achieving the seeing the alignment and planning without having to man you know juggle five balls in the air it was more likely to lead to sustainable adoption okay thanks uh, lots of um, I'm trying uh, to uh, roll through a lot of your questions and comments here um, there is an interesting question here um, that is asking let's see which one was I going for here um, Right up here, right. Oh, time, whether that was um, kind of an effective use here. Time study, the best way to look at workload for non-clinical staff. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I I wish I could tell you that there's a gold standard way of measuring uh, workload impact, and there isn't. Um, Certainly in in the work that we're doing and hopefully will become part of the toolkit is some suggestions. But, yes, uh, to to expect everybody to do a time motion study for every improvement intervention would be probably not effective and not possible. In fact, I think we just download a lot of the work onto the QI team. Uh, But, you know, there are simple tools just – asking people, you know, how well 
you know, how, how long do you have to think about this? Because sometimes we, I don't think we appreciate the actual thought that's required in some of the acts. And so it's, it appears as a sing, single or simple check on the checklist. But the amount of thought that actually goes into that and, uh, and effective thought could be large. And if you don't provide the time, then people are like, well, actually, I find this challenging to wrap my head around this. So, so there are tools out there that you just ask people, you know, and then how well did this disrupt your current work uh, flow? Um, you know, if it's something that they have to sort of step out of one role and into another, then it's going to add uh, both cognitive and physical time to that. So yes, uh, time motion studies are complex, and and but I think for large scale initiatives, um, they probably are necessary. But even for small interventions, to to just ask people, you know, did could you do you think there's an easier way to do this? Or are there other people who think who could be um, equally able to do uh, this work that you know have more flexibility or capacity? So I just think it's involving in the conversation rather than necessarily coming up with an absolute number, but at least be aware of is is this a lot of work or isn't it? So first of all, I want to thank everybody who is also sharing some of the things that you're doing in your own organization. This is your chat. This is all of our chat. And you can download this uh, when you get off the program today and uh, kind of ponder it some more. Somebody asked whether or not it, this was part of an ongoing series, Chris. That's, of course, if we can keep you here and you don't have to uh, leave your fellowship. This is ongoing work that Chris is doing and tools and the guide. Uh, are somewhat forthcoming. We're giving you a bit of a taste of it all today. I can promise you that um, uh, that we'll come back to this on WIHI for sure. Um, there were a couple questions here. Um, I guess Uma and Julie, somebody is uh, asking, what if what staff are telling you are kind of their priorities are not the same as your priorities? Hmm. Or what? <laughs> um, well, um, there actually are that that doesn't that does happen sometimes. But I think because we've been in this journey for a while, um, we have uh, and we have this inpatient structure that brings all of the people together. Julie, in fact, found and because this is probably for us a fourth year of a five-year strategic plan, I would say that's a big part of it. Julie actually found as she went through all of it that the alignment was actually quite spectacularly good. And probably for me the more important lesson from Julie's work this year is that we should do this process every year that allows people to express what they think is important and, and see whether, you know, and reconcile that with the domain leaders. And I don't know that we've done that in as explicit a way in the past as Julie and Barb and Derek have done this year. So I'm guessing there are not going to be a huge number of surprises in an organization that has priorities kind of aligned. But asking by itself is an important part of, of helping build alignment. Right. I, I would also just add that... Um, with the shared governance model being in place for quite some time um, and with a culture that has, um, I, I really feel, uh, and I'm rather new to the organization, but it really believes that the staff need to be supported, that um, that we've addressed those, we address those issues pretty quickly when they come up and that sort of freed the staff up to look at the at, uh, 
some of the other things that we need to do around the operations and the patient care and the safety. Um, but but it gets talked about. I mean, you know, things come out and uh, you have to investigate it, and, and sometimes those are some of your best learnings because you think you're doing one thing and you find out that there's this pocket of, um, you know, of a problem or something, and you can then start to address it. Thank you. Uh, can you clarify, somebody has asked what you mean by nursing governance. I want to make sure, um, or shared governance, uh, sure. st- structure. just want to make sure people understand that. Yeah. Um, so we are a magnet facility, which is um, um, from the, an accreditation here the, in the United States. Um, and part, one of the founding principles or uh, supporting principles of magnet is to have a shared governance Structure, And what that means is that nurses and nursing leaders work together to determine practice and um, policy and all those kinds of things. So there are councils at a hospital level um, for many different um, pieces of what nursing does, policy, practice, education, those kinds of things. And then there are also councils at each unit level. And um, through those um, councils, we address a lot of the frontline, at least nursing kind of unit uh, issues that could be distracting that we need to improve. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that. And that's the magnet thing that is still with the American Association of Nursing. Is that uh, still their program? Yes, yes. Okay, great. So it does seem in the chat, uh, maybe Chris, I'll ask you this. A lot of people are just not sure how do you figure out the priorities? In some sense, it, it, there is a sense that, you know, there are all these external um, pressures. There are programs that you can be involved in for reporting from leapfrog to any other, you know, requirement, uh, required things as opposed to voluntary initiatives. I, I sense almost a disbelief that uh, there is a way to choose. Um, if all of it is important and we're trying to really um, get going here on uh, getting care a lot better. Thoughts? Well, so this opens another issue that uh, I, I'm not sure how, how much I go into, but you're right. I mean, the 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 demand for to fill the so-called performance gap of where Healthcare is or is perceived to be and where we'd all like it to be is huge. Um, and we, we learn about new things every day and there are new requirements or new tools or new measurements to to help us understand where we are. And I, I, I'm not saying that any of them are, you know, not important or less valued. The, the issue becomes there's only so much bandwidth. And so... Um, there's prioritization needs to take place at probably two places. One is at those that are requesting the change in in maybe less voluntarily volunteer ways. Um, but then at the at the organization level, I mean, I think how to prioritize is very contextually dependent on where do you see where do you perceive your biggest gaps and and I truly believe that what needs to go into uh, prioritization which I think what Uma and Julie are talking about is that if you've got 10 things to do and four of them the staff are saying oh we see this as a need and we would love to work on this and then you design it to not be overly burdensome or add additional workload, then they're going to achieve those goals, and they're like, great, 
let's tackle the next. If if you prioritize and and the point of care says, well, I don't know why you're choosing those, um, whether they add workload or not, it it's it's not it's going to be a harder uh, uh, process. So I think again, prioritization is has to fit with your context. But I do think that having the, 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 the workforce and those that are delivering care be a part of that process to say, look, we got, you know, sort of 20 things to choose from. Uh, what do you think the... And, and, you know, and sometimes we don't have choice in that because there are external requirements and um, I, I'm, I'm sort of waiting for some bold leaders in, in the delivery system to say, you know what, we're going to choose not to do those ones right now because we're so convinced that our strategy right now will will be produce better outcomes using the methods and the timelines and the prioritization that we are. But, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Matt, you know, oh, go ahead. I wonder if I could comment on Uma. this. I think it's a really important question. Um, on the on the prioritization, and I was a question about like uh, U.S. News and Leapfrog. We do um, use a fairly systematic process for looking at uh, our gaps compared to any of those, asking if those are relevant to the work we're doing, and then um, prioritizing them. And uh, when we present to the board, we also let them know what what gaps we didn't work on because they didn't didn't make sense and they didn't seem relevant. Now, I would say increasingly the alignment between some of these is getting better and better. So especially, you know, as CMS has their stuff, I mean, there's a lot of alignment, but definitely making that a conscious choice is important. I also think another thing that we do which um, helps, I think, a little bit, not a lot, because I, as, as we said, we have the same problem, is that we start with the, our big dots. So we start with saying, what are our big dots? And in our case, they are, you know, safety, flow, chronic disease, patient experience, and our community health. So so any projects have to align themselves with those big dots because those are in our strategic goals. And that avoids a lot of random sort of projects coming up. And I think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. Would you agree, Julie? Yes. And, and I would also say that you have to give people the permission to remove some work, too. And I think we're trying to be a lot more conscious about that and saying, you know, what what is value added? Um, you know, if you go back to the IHI, TCAB, Transforming Care at the Bedside, there is time that can be removed, um, wasted time in the work, but there's also things that, hey, maybe we tried this and we're not getting the, the benefit that we thought. You, you can't, what, what we hear loud and clear is you can't just always add. Sometimes you have to subtract and find some really um, thoughtful and, and, and do some initiatives to actually reduce time and work. Um, and, and we are starting to do that. We have by no means mastered it, but we are, we're talking about a lot more, and, we're, and we've got a couple projects underway. So that, that's helpful. And then I would even say that when you have that regulatory thing that you have to do, um, is, you know, you share that, we, we share that with our teams, but by, by doing like small test of change to um, find the answer, you can engage the staff in the solution and determine what the value is of that solution and actually the feasibility of doing it early on in the process before you get too far down. And I think that saves some time as well. So. 
Thank you very much, uh, Uma and Julie. And, you know, Kelly McDowell, very um, active in the tweet as, excuse me, in the chat here, as are many of you. And I, um, she says she's concerned that I'm only hearing that QI projects increase workload. And I actually, um, you know, in a way by looking, <laughs> by deciding we want to put some spotlight on the ways in which it may be and seems to be does not mean that all of these initiatives do that. And of course, the goal uh, is one that's more in concert with what you're talking about in terms of Toyota model and lean, et cetera. In fact, you know, Chris, it, we're sort of talking about this vision of at what point can things start to actually look like one, not two jobs, one job, um, yeah. where the improvement is really paying off. I think part of what everyone is also talking about here is that the improvement work itself may need a really, really careful uh, scrutiny in terms of to what degree some of the improvement work itself has a lot of waste in it. Um, Chris? Yeah, so as I'm just uh, reading through the chat here, um, so a lot of uh, the conclusions and uh, suggestions that we put into uh, the model and into the assessment guide and suggested actions and tools comes from organizations and quality improvement initiatives that have succeeded. So um, as much as we're maybe talking about what we where we need to go from to, um, I, I think as uh, uh, Kelly is articulating in the chat that there is there is ways of doing quality improvement that do not add workload that absolutely make the job easier, that remove waste and streamline processes uh, in in of care across uh, departments, and, and that's really the whole purpose is that you know they do take a concerted effort, uh, they take thought and and it's sort of an upfront. Uh, commitment to saying we, we understand that the system you know it needs special attention because there's that we can add work or create or you know not see waste and so some of the some of the strategies that are being discussed in the chat are exactly the ones that um, fortunately or unfortunately have to be added to the toolkit when people do improvement initiatives and Unfortunately, independent of uh, some of the feedback from uh, the the pilot users have been that well, for one stream of work, which is sort of internal internally generated um, improvement work that fits with our strategic plan and goals, we seem to uh, do well on alignment and fit and assessing workload, but. You know, we've now seen that we have this disconnect between that and and those things that we're asked to do as an external requirement, and that this is just sort of well, we got to hurry up and get this done, and not applying those same principles. And I think, unfortunately, you just always have to pause and reflect and say, how are we going to generate the most perceived value um, through you know our strategies, and and at what point are we going to realize that you know this is the amount of workload it is. Um, are we going to add 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or at that level of cognition? Do we have to? Do we have no choice? Or is there ways that we can look at this? And I think value stream mapping and um, and looking for waste at the same time that you're doing an improvement change is 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 really part of the answer. So, so it's amazing. I, I first of all, we're we're heading to the top of the hour. Uh, we love delving into really rich topics on WIHI. We will definitely come back to this one. Um, if you can think all ahead, it's June, but 
at some point it will be December, and uh, Chris Hayes will be in Orlando with us at our national forum this year doing, doing a learning lab uh, on this work. Um, so a couple of hours with Chris and colleagues uh, delving into this. And we will also uh, get as much stuff up on the website tomorrow as we can for you to delve into further. I want to go around the horn now, and I want to uh, start with Uma and Julie, and just some final thoughts. Um, I want to thank you both for uh, joining us and sharing the story of this piece of a story going on at Cincinnati Children's. There are many there. Um, kind of what what we might um, you know look for next if we talked in six months or, or a year. Uma, uh, do you think we'd be having the same conversation? Thanks. I think in six months uh, we would probably expect that we have done some leaning on our inpatient area using the TCAP model Julie mentioned so that we are committed to removing waste as much as possible. I think in six months uh, I would expect our operational excellence team to, um, you know, to really um, work much better in making the improvements and then I suspect with Chris's recommendation that we will be doing actually some good time study measurements to understand our workload and address it. Thank you very much. Julie. Um, you second, I second with what Uma said. <laughs> yes, I agree with what Uma said, uh, and I would only add that I think we are in the process this year of looking at that alignment and that prioritization and how um, and to better define it and to kind of learn and see who, what works and what's not working because uh, it's a focus. Okay. Thank you very much. And, Chris, what happens next with your work? Well, so I'll promise by six months that the actual tool and toolkit will be available so that people can uh, see if it's helpful in their uh, improvement journey. And then I hope by sort of within six months and a year that the conversation really starts to change at all levels to say, you know, maybe we just – we and, and – um, uh, I think Julie spoke about this earlier. We, we we can't just continue with a work harder strategy. We've got to move to a work smarter strategy, and that includes from government to policymakers to legislators to say, listen, uh, we we we've got to make sure that we're not making the delivery of healthcare harder in an effort to make it better, and 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 really reflect on that. So if that's where the conversation goes, then. Uh, I'll be happy. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Uma and Julie from Cincinnati Children's and Chris Hayes. Uh, we really, um, uh, you know, it's it's hard to get to, <laughs> to all our questions. This is an hour-long program. Uh, sometimes we've tried to go over, and some of you are able to stick around, but you overwhelmingly tell us the hour is probably about right. There were some interesting comments about simulation. Uh, somebody wondered about the personality of individuals and how much that's a factor uh, in determining what happens with improvement projects. Uh, somebody asked whether this could be helpful to patients who are also working on uh, behavior change. What about culture? We were always hoping that culture change in some ways sets uh, the stage. And um, Chris, I think one of the first things you started to talk about was kind of early awareness and getting input and staff buy-in and that in and of itself being a very, very critical thing. What sets you on a path perhaps uh, to having even a shot at people people feeling like
like, all right, let me figure this out. If there's an open channel to talk about it as opposed to you're just going to do this, um, I think that makes a huge difference. So, all right. Well, we are at time, and thank you for uh, all of those, all of you who stuck around. Next up on WIHI on June 19th, uh, we have a great program. We're going to be talking about population health and uh, new roles, new routes for leaders, and we hope you'll take advantage of that program. Um, and also then we'll be back in July. A reminder that you can download the chat, any slides we use today. You can take a look at the survey, um, at the survey, the WebEx poll we took, and then we'd uh, very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey how this show was for you today. Check out that archived page of WIHI tomorrow. Uh, Jane Rosner sometimes sticks something up on Facebook after this program. Uh, Eric Reed has been uh, tweeting, and uh, perhaps you can pick up on some of her uh, tweets. What's your handle, Erica? ESJ Reed. ESJ Reed? Okay, at ESJ Reed. All right, look for, and that's R E I D, right? Okay, look for that. The people who help make WIHI possible are Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morris. And we have a Northeastern co op, Tala Agusain, who's been so helpful. I want to thank uh, Uma Kodagal and Julie Holt again from Cincinnati Children's, Chris Hayes, one of our wonderful fellows this year. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. You've been a great audience. Thanks for the discussion. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Mm-hmm.